Hey everyone, just a quick warning. This episode has a bit more swearing than normal, so uh, if you're listening with kids, you may want to rethink that because we did not beep anything. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Canadian Jewish Schmooze after our little vacation. My name is Michael Freeman. I'm Alex Rose. And today in the podcast, we're going to be uh, asking, do Jews need to worry about this? Uh, do Jews need to worry about Jew face, uh, quote unquote, uh, non-Jews playing Jewish characters in uh, film and TV? Also, we'll talk about the NDP candidate from Nova Scotia who was dropped by her party after some of her old tweets criticizing Israel surfaced. But before all that, we're going to have a chat with our special guest this week, Natalie Norman, the comic extraordinaire from Toronto, uh, eight-year veteran. Hi. <laughs> I just waved at you. I just... I t- and I took it. <laughs> that's, it that's the cue. She, uh, just, you just released your album, uh, your debut album, July 1st, if I'm not mistaken. It was, ju- yes, on Canada Day. I'm making it Natalie Day. <laughs> oh. Yeah, right? It's we'll now s- a thing. We'll see if it catches on. Yeah. Uh, before we get into it, I'd love to play a clip from it so people can hear what you're all about. But I think the real reason, um, <laughs> one of the big reasons I've been depressed lately is um, ever since Target Canada shut down. <laughs> Ever since it shut down, my heart's been broken. <laughs> As a plus-size Jewess, there's nowhere I'd rather be <laughs> than Target Canada. The day it opened, the, this is all true, the day it opened, I ran from downtown to Thorin Hill. I ran. I think I might have been the first person there. And I walked in there, and I had the time of my fucking life. I was just walking around. There was this beautiful plus-size section. Um, And at that time, um, plus-size people hadn't been invented yet. (laughs) But I was walking around just having a really good time. And out of nowhere, I like bumped into a woman. And as I was about to say something, she interrupted me and she was like, were you not gonna say sorry? And I was like, well, I was, uh, I was about, and then she was like, you're the rudest person I've ever met. (laughs) The night before I had been drinking. And the day after I drink, I get highly emotional, like very extra crazy. So when she said, you're the rudest person I've ever met, I said, I'm the nicest. (laughs) The prettiest. The funniest. Woman ever. I'm a humanitarian. (laughs) You cunt. So, uh, Natalie, uh, on on your album, uh, a lot of it sounds improvised. It starts off, most of it's kind of off the cuff. I'm wondering how much of of your set is really improvised versus how much is is pre-planned. That's a good question. Um, I like it to feel like it's a conversation, a comedy. But uh, the only part that's actually improvised is the first, like, 10 minutes. And that was stuff, like, that I had been feeling and thinking about, which I was eventually, like, some of it I was going to work into a joke later on. But it just came out, and I Mm -hmm. thought it sounded pretty funny. So we decided to keep it. And, I mean, the first part about my mother, um, (laughs) We're not going to play that clip, per se, but you can give a summary. Yeah, it's just... Honestly, my mom didn't give me permission to talk about it. <laughs> so, but it's about her lady parts. 
And um, I'm going to mark this episode as explicit, so you don't need to worry. I about know, it. but I feel uncomfortable. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why, but uh, that part was mainly improvised, and like I keep on working on it because it was just improvised on that show. But the rest of it, for the most part, are jokes that I've been working on for years. I mean, in between jokes, there's like some riffing and like acknowledgement of the audience and that stuff, and that's all improvised. Um, and some words I add in, and it just depends how I feel. It's nice that the first time you shared some intimate details about your mother was when you were being recorded for your <laughs> album. <laughs> I mean, isn't that the way to do it? <laughs> uh, when you say you've been working on jokes for years, uh, I mean, obviously you've been around for eight years now. People in the Toronto comedy scene probably know who you are. When did you realize that you wanted to do comedy or when did you realize that you were funny? Well, funny is a different story than realize I wanted to do it professionally. Which one's a better story? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> they're not very good stories either of them, to be honest. <laughs> like, I just was always the funny kid at summer camp, right? Like, um, when you're kind of look, like, when you don't look like the typical child, I guess. Like, I was always overweight, had, like, glasses. Not everyone had glasses. I had an eye patch at one point. You know, I was always the uh, odd girl out. I think you kind of take on comedy in a sense to like fit in and people will like you. Um, and I was always that funny child. But then I um, stumbled into stand up by accident <laughs> years ago when I was taking like a class at Second City to write. And then they had a stand up class and I was like, why not try this? Because it's a different form of writing and, you know, maybe it could help me write scripts or something. And then uh, I fell in love with it, and then I, like, hated it, and then I fell in love with it again, and then it's just on and on. Uh, many years ago, I tried stand-up for one summer, and I decided to quit when I realized I, it, it, I didn't enjoy the anxiety enough to keep going. Like, it caused me more anxiety than it caused me joy the few times I got a laugh. Uh, so I'm kind of wondering, like, what made you get through that? I honestly don't know, because I, I still have tremendous amounts of anxiety, like, uh, a few months ago, I was doing the Winnipeg Comedy Festival, and it's a stage of, like, 700 people. You don't get a chance to perform in front of 700 people very often in Canada, and it's for television. So it was incredibly nerve-wracking, and the anxiety was so overwhelming, and I kept on being like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why do I want to torture myself like this? But then you make it through, and it's worth it. Why is it worth it? Oh, because when you're doing well, the amount of laughter feels better than, like, drugs. Or like sex, like anything. I can't explain the high. It's insane. And then you have to get that next high, right? So so you're just an addict now. Yeah, you can't be a stand-up comedian without being an addict in one way or another. Like, it's crazy job. Why would you want to continue? It's insane. Yeah. It's insane. Like, the first year is also so awful. Yeah. Like, you're doing open mics. It's like sweaty rooms. Nobody's listening. It's like, if you make it past the first year... It's like, that's good on you. <laughs> that's why I did it. Yeah. <laughs> I think my worst one, I, I uh, performed at some open mic and I followed Dave Mirage. Yeah, that's my and good friend. he was like, he's like loud and active and stuff. And I, I just, I bombed harder than I've ever bombed because I was like quiet and stumbling. Well, that's and like, the, I, I couldn't follow him. Well, you, you know, many people can't follow Dave Mirage because, like, he's a, you know, he's got a Netflix special. He's a very famous, like, comedian. He's on American shows. Like, it's, and that's the thing with open mics. Like, they're not leveled out so that they're fair. But I think those moments make you better. Didn't me. make me better. <laughs> I mean, it might have made you better if you stuck with it. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. I don't have the tenacity for it. <laughs> I'm into podcasting now. Yeah. Where I can hide. You can, you also have to have, like, a, you have to be, I think, like, a, you have to like going out at night, like every night. 
like you have to devote most of your life to it for years and like you don't necessarily get like a life outside of that so you seem to have like a life (laughs) (laughs) you said you loved it then hated it then loved it was there a point when you thought about quitting was there a point when you realized you couldn't that it had already like yeah, no, fair question. Um, I want to quit it every day. <laughs> like, it's ongoing love-hate because um, it's so hard sometimes and you feel so down and, like, say you have a bad set. Like, I literally want to walk into a river. <laughs> like, it makes me miserable. But then when it's so good, you feel really high for, like, maybe an hour or two. At this point, it's an hour or two. Like, I don't live – like, it used to be when I started out, it would be, like, a day it'd carry me through. Um, but every week – it's different and some weeks are really bad you know I got like heckled by another comedian last week so like that was terrible and they said some terrible things about me and then you know the next week I released an album so I'm kind of stuck like at this (laughs) point at this point I don't know what else I would do and I don't have like a capability to do anything else and I love it I think I would be really depressed if I didn't have it you you do talk about your depression on stage yeah Pretty openly. You talk about a lot of stuff very openly. Yeah, I'm disgusting. (laughs) You can just say it, I'm disgusting. Well, that's what I'm, like, on the one hand, when I listen to it, uh, like, it does sound kind of gross, but then I realize that if I, like, the whole point is to open up the conversation and make it not gross. And normalize it. Yeah, that's the whole thing, yeah. But I still find it, like, it is gross. And you even say, you you acknowledge that it is kind of gross. Oh, I'm disgusting. So, like... (laughs) So is it fair to find it gross or not? I mean, as long as you find it funny <laughs> and gross at the same time. I mean, that's the whole thing is like, it's. I know it's gross for other people, but like that's not even the grossest thing I've ever said by a long shot. Like to me, that's nothing. Like that's literally nothing because the real gross stuff doesn't work on stage. What, why are you so comfortable talking about that stuff? Oh my gosh, my parents are insane. <laughs> I'm the youngest of five. There's a lot of children. Um, my parents let me watch Rocky Horror Picture Show, like, when I was in grade three, and, like, Dirty Dancing when I was, like, five, which is, like, Dirty Dancing isn't such a sexual, I mean, for, for a five-year-old, it's, like, pretty out there, but, uh, I don't know, I just think, um, I also went to summer camp, I went to, like, a summer camp that was, like, very, honestly sexualized. Which camp was it? I went to Solim, Shalom, yeah. and Bilouim. Did you go? No, but when you said it was very sexualized, I just knew it would be a YJ camp. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're because their camp's based on like communism and op- not communism. Well, especially Solim and Bilouim when it's just like a bunch of horny preteens all running around with like basically no oversight except for like slightly less horny teenagers. <laughs> slightly less. They're probably or, even or horny. more. Yeah. Like, it's, it's all... Yeah. It's like a mess. It's like, <laughs> I, I love it, but it was a mess. And like... Um, I think you just like, I don't know. I never, I never feel so, like I know it's gross. Like I say it's gross because I know like people are anxious about it. And I feel if I acknowledge it, maybe they'll be a little less anxious about me being disgusting. <laughs> but like, I also think it's so funny. And like, literally that's tame for me. Uh, but then what about the uh, the depression stuff, which is less gross, but still I think open? It's, I think it's really important to talk about. So when I started doing comedy years ago, um, I wanted to talk about depression more because it took me a really long time to get diagnosed with depression. Like, it took five or six years. They didn't know what was wrong with me. When was this? This is So I got diagnosed in 2004, but I can say, like, for sure I had depression in grade nine. Like, for sure. So how old are you in grade nine? Fifteen? Yeah. 
So, yeah. So, like, I knew then something was wrong, but they couldn't. They took me for all these, like, crazy tests and, like, brain scans and all this stuff, and they couldn't, like, diagnose me. So I think it's really important to talk about it because I waited so long for, like, help. And I think it's also important for people to realize, like, they're never alone. And, like, maybe if they hear about it, they feel the same way. And, like, you know, like, it's comforting to hear someone and identify with you or, like, you can identify with them. How did you know in grade nine what, what was happening? Oh, my God, I was a mess. I, like, didn't leave my house. I cried all the time. Just severely depressed. I mean, you, you guys have depression, right? <laughs> Doesn't everyone have it? Or no, okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I have it sometimes. A lot of it is, like, um, I have ADHD, and I, I wasn't assessed until grade 12 when I wasn't doing any of my work, and I just felt miserable all the time. And it turns out those two were related. And I'm only just now starting to actually come to terms with, like, what it means for me because I, you know, I got my pills and stuff and I would use that as, like, a fix when I was having trouble doing the work I needed to do without actually engaging with the ways it was holding me back. And now that I actually accept that about myself and just think of it as something, you know, to be aware of and manage, I, it, can't, it doesn't get me as down when I'm like, oh, I'm struggling here because of this limit that I have. And it's not, it doesn't say anything about my character. No, exactly. And, like, what's really interesting about that is I'm 99 sure that I have like ADD or ADHD and the reason is that I read this like this is so crazy to say this out loud but I read an article in the Atlantic about little girls with ADHD and how they're often not diagnosed because it appears differently than it does in men Mm -hmm. and little boys and I'm pretty sure I also have that but I'm like at the point where like I'm 33 like like do I get pills now or like I'm a comedian like well it's well, not just pills they're also strategies and well things. strategies and all that stuff I mean it's it's like what do I do but I know you know like it's hard for me to concentrate and all that stuff but I luckily have a job where concentration necessarily isn't a necessity yeah <laughs> and being all over the place kind of works for me yeah you're allowed <laughs> to be distracted um then let's talk about uh, Judaism real quick. Okay, yeah. Uh, obviously, you are Jewish. You're wearing a, a Magen David uh, necklace yeah. beside your uh, crystal. Uh, <laughs> lis- listeners of your album will know you're quite into crystals. Yeah. On on a scale from uh, Drake to Stissel, how Jewish are you? Oh, my God, right in the middle. <laughs> I'm more Jewish than people ever realize because there's a lot of things that I do that I don't share. That's the stuff that I don't actually share with the public is, like, the public. As if I'm like a big deal, but like audiences. Hey, you're on our podcast. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Are we a big? We're a big deal, right, Michael? (laughs) We're big enough. Yeah. I just just like it's weird to like explain to people. First of all, comedians in general don't understand someone that's Jew, like a religious person. Like they're like, "Why you're a comedian? You should be the antithesis to religion." And I'm like, "Okay, the two aren't don't go together necessarily," and. Um, I'm also a pretty liberal person, so it doesn't make sense for a lot of people's minds that I'd be also a religious person. I think people have a hard time, like, connecting the two. But, like, I say Shema every night. <laughs> like, every night. Like, I do not go to bed no matter where I am. I say it every night. And, like, I'm, I do have a lot of, like, cultural Judaism in me and, like, super – like, you know when there's, like, a lot of superstition with Jews? Like, that carries throughout me a lot. And, like, you know, I ex- I speak a lot of, like, I guess this isn't – religious or religion based but like I speak a lot of Yiddish words here and there so people think of me as like Jewish but like to other you know it's so weird I don't know how to qualify it well because most downtown Toronto Jews are just culturally Jewish and not in any way religious but you actually have a little bit of the I have religion. a I, yeah I do I think saying a prayer is pretty religious compared to other for people sure. and I go to I've like 
recently I went to like a shul downtown to see what it's like, you know, I went with my seven of my other friends and like we wanted to see what it was like and it was interesting. It was like very, very liberal shul, which I've never been to because I grew which up. Which one in, was it? We went to city shul. And like I grew up conservative, so it's a weird and I went to Jewish summer camp. You know, it's like a weird place to be. Why um I don't know if this is an odd question, but why are you religious? Oh, it's so it's complicated. I think a lot has to do with anxiety and like uh, we can, we guilt can go there. and guilt and guilt. And like uh, I think a lot is ingrained from going to a Jewish summer camp um, and having grandparents that survived the Holocaust, grandparents that survived the Holocaust. Yep. I mean, like, how could you not be like they survived so much and you're just going to give it up now? Like. And, like, sometimes I, like, it's also fun. Some of it's really fun. <laughs> like, not necessarily the praying, but, like, you know, sometimes me and my roommates and my friends will have, like, a Shabbos dinner. And, like, it's fun for us because it reminds us of childhood in a weird way. And it's comforting. I forget if I've said this on the podcast before, but a friend of mine once said to me, uh, Alex, do you realize how lucky you are that you have this, like, whole heritage that you've been born into and raised in? And I said... Honestly, I've just taken it for granted this whole time, and now I try to appreciate it a lot more because, you know, it is fun to do the Jewish stuff with friends, but it's also meaningful, and it, it's a sense of, like, connection and depth that I don't really have many, if any, other ways of accessing. Right, and it's, like, it's an unconditional kind of, like, whether or not you get along with other Jewish people or you feel a part of them, it is a tie to a community. Mm-hmm. And, like, for me, like, I have Havdalah candles in my house, <laughs> and, like, sometimes we, like, me and my roommate went to summer camp together. That's how we know each other. And we'll do Havdalah together. And, like, it's foreign to other people, but also my friends who aren't Jewish are, like, so intrigued by it and they want to be part of it. And, like, people always ask me to teach them Yiddish. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I will say, but <laughs> this is, maybe this is inappropriate for the podcast. I will say, like, I'm so addicted to, like, saying the Shema every night that, like, if I'm sleeping at some guy's house, like, it becomes, like, really awkward. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do. Like, do I go to the bathroom naked and I say it, but you can't say it in the bathroom, right? Like, that's bad. So, like, or do we... a turn off. Can you not just mutter it under your breath? Well, like, I feel like I have to take a minute. It's like, I take a minute to yourself, right? And then, like, do I say it while they're sleeping? Do I say it over their bodies? I don't know. <laughs> like, like, can you imagine waking up? It'd be so crazy. I'm sure it's happened. I've dated a Jewish guy being like, what are you doing? And I'm like, you know what? Leave me alone. It's hard to explain to people. Yeah. I think you said you had a story you wanted to share when you were oh, talking dude. before. Because <laughs> my stand-up album isn't particularly Jewish, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. um, I just, the like, this is, I don't know if I, it's important. You can delete this if you want to. But, like, I was dating a Jewish guy in 2018. And uh, it was our second time dating, of course. And um, he was at a bat mitzvah one night. Like, that's very Jewish for us. <laughs> and he texted me being like, hey, I think we might be cousins. And I was like, what? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, like, disappeared for 12 hours. And I was like, oh, my God. Did, have I slept with my cousin? Like, what is going on? This is a problem. And then it turns out we're, we are related, but, like, through marriage. Oh. But it's too close to me because he keeps on being like, he kept on being like, our family, right? Because it is our family. And I was like, this is a nightmare. This is a nightmare. This is why it's hard to date other Jewish people because there's a 90% chance you're related to them. Oh, yeah. There's always that risk. Especially yeah. in if you go far enough back. Yeah. Based on what we were talking about before, do you have any strategies to um, kind of balance the fact that your job demands external validation with, with ways to be secure in yourself when you're not getting that, especially if, you know, you've had a rough night on the stage or something like that? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because I'm at the point where, like, 
the validation I get on stage lasts so short, right? Like for me now, like like the album recording was so such an amazing experience. So that carried me through to a few days. But then, you know, you wake up, say you do a set, bad or good. The next morning, I have to get up and do work. So I just have to keep going. And I have a lot of friends in my life. And like, I distract myself by other things. And I look for, to be honest, the most validation I look for in life is through a partner. (laughs) So that's where (laughs) I'm not getting what I need. Comedy at this point is like, oh, this is my job. No, give me valid, give me, give me, give me validation from a loving partner, which I don't have. So (laughs) I'm always miserable is my point. (laughs) Did that answer the question? All right. Well, uh, the album is called The Big Reveal. It is out. Where can people find it? You can get it on any streaming site, iTunes, Spotify, the major two ones. Um, it's on a record label called Howl and Roar. Uh, check it out because they have other amazing albums. It's produced by a lovely woman, Allison Dore. And there's amazing comedians on the label. So if you like me, you should like some of the other ones. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're going to get a little more serious here um, and and talk about a recent uh, Canadian Jewish news scandal, such as it is. Alex, why don't you explain it in a little more depth? Okay, so in Nova Scotia, there was an NDP candidate who was recently dropped from the ticket because of some tweets she made a year ago where she compared Israel to Nazis and, and made some, you know, anti-Semitic kind of tropes about lobby money being the reason that Canada supports Israel. Um and I'll say this right off the top. Uh, this is someone I know, someone I've interviewed in the past when I was living in Halifax as a journalism student. Um, her name is Rana Zaman, and she you know, was an activist for a long time before going into politics. And she always spoke about bringing people together and, and you know, trying to help integrate people into the community. And, and, um, and I really liked her when I met her and it's times we spoke, and she was always like very caring and, and thoughtful. Um, and I still feel that way better now. I don't think she's anti-Semitic. I'll read what she said in a moment. I do think she said anti-Semitic things, and I think for that reason, I think it makes sense that the NDP dropped her, because I'm going to read uh, a few tweets. So one of them said, I wonder if hashtag Israel borrowed this from the hashtag Nazis after they saw how successful they were. At the speed Israel is killing, I wonder if they're aiming higher than 6 million hashtag Palestinians. Hashtag Gaza is the new hashtag Auschwitz and hashtag Israel the gatekeepers. I realize okay, I sorry, didn't that's to too many hashtags. No, but it's too many hashtags. I'm glad that you did. Yeah. You don't need hashtag Auschwitz in this. <laughs> Nobody else is clicking the hashtag Auschwitz. <laughs> yeah. Except maybe oh, like a comedian. Neo-Nazis also. <laughs> or neo-Nazi. That's it. And then, you know, there's another one like... Um, to Trudeau, she said, you advocating for hashtag apartheid Israel because of their stellar hashtag human right record or wealthy lobby efforts. So it's stuff like that. And she did apologize in the end. It's a pretty long apology. I won't read the whole thing. Um, And so I... But you found it a credulous apology. I found it pretty good on the scale of apologies. Um, Not the best in that, like, you know, I think where a lot of this comes from is... um, you know, this is my own opinion here, but a lot of like, this is something I've only realized as someone who, you know, lived in a progressive environment for six years at, at the University of King's College. And I loved it there. And I, I really enjoyed my time there. And I'm not disavowing the things I believed when I was there or the things I believe now. But I will say that I think a lot of progressive people, including progressive Jewish people, of which I consider myself, have a tendency to conceive of Jewish people as just affluent white people. And don't necessarily see the ways that like our, our history of oppression still affects us now. Um, and I think that's important because uh, 
you know, we're, we're not just affluent white people because we're not all affluent, we're not all white. But also, you know, something like the Holocaust is a generational, intergenerational trauma that it makes sense has these shockwaves that reverberate through the generations and affect our actions. And I think if this has happened to some group that we see clearly as a minority group, and it's hard for us to see that sometimes and for other progressive people to see that sometimes because of, you know, the position we hold now where we are very privileged in a lot of ways. But if, if this had happened to another minority group and they were concerned about their own safety and well-being, I disagree with a lot, a lot of what goes on. But, you know, since I've worked at the CJN, I at least have an appreciation with where the people I disagree with are coming from. And um, I think at least that's why, you know, when when you try to reduce it to black and white. And also just, you know, comparing someone to the people who instigated a genocide against them is... Yeah, it's crass. Um, I will say, we're not all affluent and we're not all white. Yeah. A lot of us are. A lot of us are, but no, I, I, I believe that and I see where it came from. Because again, like, I didn't see the whole picture, but I think you have to take the, our history into account. And, you know, it's arguably the first generation where we've, like, you know... I feel really safe and secure as a Jewish person. I don't. Yeah. And I don't. Um, like, I, like, agree with, like, the fact that we are, there's a ton of us that are affluent and white, and we are privileged. Um, I always think I'm, I'm particularly lucky because I don't think I'm Jewish appearing. And what I mean by that is, like, I don't look like a stereotype of what a Jew looks like, and a, for, and a lot of us do. A lot of us really do. And, like, I wear my Jewish star, my Star of David, because I think I'm proud to be Jewish and I want people to know because people don't look at me and don't know. And I think I don't feel safe in a lot of ways. Like, if you're traveling around the world, you cannot wear your Star of David. You cannot tell people you're Jewish. We are not allowed into so many countries just because of our religion. So be it. Whatever. That's their choice. But um, I don't know. Now I've lost track, but I just... (laughs) I just like I just want to say I don't feel safe. Yeah, and lots of people don't feel safe or secure, and and you know that's valid because of all this shit that's happened to us. Yeah. Um. So I will veer back to the the core story here. Of, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we got really off track. So, yeah. That's <laughs> of of this one woman's comments. Um. She made these tweets a year ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh. And so this is a, a somewhat smaller, but but still relevant recent example of um somebody's old tweets coming back to bite them in the ass, which happens every week, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, you know, Natalie, you're in the comedy world. Like, there's no shortage of, of Oh, this, of, is, co- this of is what happens. You know, Trevor Noah was a big one, uh, mostly because Jews were, were included in the butt of his jokes way yeah. back when he was announced as, the, as, as taking over from Jon Stewart. Yeah, yeah. And, like, so it goes in, yeah, obviously it goes in many different forms. So, like, so basically, yeah, is it fair? It's a really weird lot. Like, it's really weird for me as a comedian because... Who I am as a comedian, I think I have certain morals that I uphold myself to be. Like, I don't think you should be anti-Semitic. I don't think you should be Islamophobic. I don't think you should be racist. I don't think you should be, uh, hom- like, homophobic. I don't believe in shitting on homeless people. Uh, I don't think you should be fatphobic. Like, I'm a very different breed of comedian, and I know that. And I do think your tweets speak words to who you are as a performer, right? Because often... Even if you're observational comedy, like a comedian, sorry, your jokes come from somewhere real to you. So they're coming from a real place. It's not just like a thought that you had second in that fluid of your head. So like, There's no such thing as like an offhand tweet. Definitely not. 
and especially when we're like you include so many hashtags, like which honestly well, she's in one of them. She hashtagged <laughs> organizations, I think. Okay. <laughs> okay. So in this one, she, okay. So obviously this was like a premeditated tweet. Well, like it's more than one. Yeah. And like, first of all, if you're, this is the thing, like in general, the biggest hoopla of all of this is like, why don't you have someone sorting through your tweets being like, this is inappropriate or maybe this is going to cause trouble. It takes 10 minutes. And if you don't want to do it, you can pay someone to sort through it. You literally can pay. So- you can. So, like, that's the thing. If she didn't. And, like, I'm not here to judge what, like, who she is and her politics and all that stuff. I just think we live in a time where social media, our social media is so criticized. We have to be aware of that, that it has consequences for what we say because they are our opinions. So even though you're a comedian, you're not a free speech absolutist comedian. That's not what free speech means to me. Free speech, okay. like, I just think free speech that's harming other people isn't necessarily free speech. That's hate speech, and they're very different. But it's difficult to, to draw the line between what's harming people and, like, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the debate between the right to offend versus the there's no right to not be offended. Right. Um, I mean, I think a lot of that's, like, malarkey. <laughs> Like, it's, like, fucking bullshit. Like, (laughs) you know when you're fucking offending someone. You know when you, like, I'm a pretty, considered, like, a pretty disgusting blue comedian, right? And my comedy is disgusting and somewhat edgy because depression isn't talked about. I talk sometimes about suicide. Those are dark subjects, for lack of better words, but I'm not offending audience members. Are you sure? I, I mean, like, is, has nobody come up to you and been like, the way you I'll talk tell about you menstruation is, has offended me? Yes. I'll tell you, the only instance I've ever been had someone come up to me is I have the, on my album a joke where I say spooky dick. And some guy got offended by that. And to him, I say, that joke isn't necessarily about you. It's not about your spooky dick. Exactly. Oh, it wasn't the dick you were referring to. No. It was just like some <laughs> random guy who was offended by, like, the idea that, like, you know, maybe I think some dicks are spooky. And that, to me, is, like, if that's the thing you're offended about, if that's the hill you're willing to die on, good. So it, it, this in this particular tweet, because this is not an isolated sort of tweet, especially from a politician, especially on a, a, a left-leaning party. Um, there's a number of them in, in the United States doing the same thing. People in the green, there's an ongoing debate going on in the Green Party about whether or not to support BDS. Is this tweet on the same level of those other more obviously egregious tweets. Hashtagging Auschwitz is like too much for me. If she didn't hashtag it, it would have been a fine comment. Maybe. I don't know. Like it's it's the idea that you're trying to rally other people behind you. That's why you hashtag things, right? It's to bring attention and so people that are like minded will click on it. And I think that might for me, like I'm not once again not here to say whether or not she should be fired, whatever or whatever, but I do worry that like you're really rallying the neo-Nazis with that hashtag for me. Like, who else is clicking on Auschwitz? Hashtag Auschwitz. Like, who else? I think going back to what you were saying before, like, should we hold people accountable for these things? Like, I don't know. I believe in apologies and people, like, if we give them a chance, I mean, it depends on what they say and stuff. If we give them a chance to actually show that, like, if we think something's wrong, but they apologize and it seems sincere and it gives them a chance to modify their behavior. Yeah. And there's more for pe- things that people say, not as much things people do. Or yeah. Which, right. which she did. In, in this case. Uh, yeah, um, she did. Uh, and I, I, I believe her apology was sincere. I believe in apologies and I believe in forgiveness. So like, I just, cause I did, I'm trying to stay away from like whether or not this was right or wrong of people to let her go from the NDV party mm-hmm. and all that stuff. 
but I do think it's really important that we do learn how to forgive people and that it was a mistake in time and like you know, hopefully they learn to better themselves from such an incident. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think this was probably the best case scenario. I think they were right to let her go. I think she was right to apologize, and now we're all right to move on. All right, so our final segment, as always, we're asking, do Jews need to worry about Jew face? Which is an expression I first heard today when Michael asked me if I thought Jews needed to worry about Jew face. Jamie Hirsch, our, uh, the, the co-host of Menschwormers, our Jewish sports podcast. I yeah, give it he, a listen if you like Jews and sports. Yeah, and he specifically was angered by the performance of the son in Transparent played by Jade Duplass. Or Duplass. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce that name. Duples, maybe? <laughs> I don't think it's Duples. <laughs> uh, whatever it is, it's not a Jewish name because Jay Duplass is not Jewish, but he does play a Jewish guy. He and it's real Jewish. It's so, he does pass. It's somewhat of a stereotypical role. He's very neurotic. He has mom issues. It's. It, it, I, I think the character is more fleshed out than that. Um, but in Jamie's reading, it was a, it's a potentially harmful portrayal of Jews by a non-Jew right. uh, based on some simplistic tropes. Um, I, I personally disagree. I don't think Jews have to worry about Jew face. I never mind if non-Jews, um, uh, you know, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is not played by a Jewish woman. You're telling me they couldn't have found a Jewish woman that could have done that role? I'm sure they could have, but the one they found is fantastic. She is, That's the thing. She is so, fantastic. So She's I really, think, really good. I mean, I, I think that the quality of the role and the quality of the actor determines it for sure. Um, but if you do it well, then then you do it. And that's that, that that's my stance on it, just outright. Coming out of the gates, I don't think Jews have to worry about Jew faith. Where do you stand? Um, I'll go quick because I thought about this a little bit. Natalie, you said you have some opinions about it, so I'll just yeah, I have opinions about so, everything. So I'll say I'll say <laughs> my little piece. I, I first really thought about this when the uh, on the basis of sex, the Ruth Bader Ginsburg movie starring Felicity Jones. The trailer came out, and someone said like they're whitewashing her. Not only is she not Jewish, but she's like her stereotypical Jewish features. They chose someone who doesn't have those, who has like a small nose, and I'm like. I don't know, would it be better if they put a prosthetic nose on her? Or if they thought she was the one who could do it best, um, that like they chose her, like similar to Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So I don't know, it's it's an open question for me. I, I don't think it's something we have to worry about, but I do wonder if, if it should be a thing that we should be aware of. I mean, I don't like the term Jew face. I yeah, think that's it, fair. <laughs> I think it equates it to blackface, and I don't think it's the same. Right. So that's the first issue with that term for me. Fair enough. I, I agree. I've never heard that term in my life, which is weird. Um, I don't know. I don't really think of it like if I want to be mad about something, sure, I guess I could be mad about it. But I don't think about it ever. Um, like I, like you all said, like you play them well, they play them well. Um, I think what's more concerning to me is the way the characters are portrayed than the actual people who play them. And that's when it becomes like, you know, very stereotypical, like the tropes of what a Jew is, that's when it becomes a problem for me. I mean, I think I have more issues with, like, uh, personally, with way more issues with people doing blackface than Jewface. Oh, yeah, for I will, sure. I will, I will say, uh, we don't have to keep saying Jewface because okay. you don't like it, but I did, just, <laughs> I did just look it up. This is not a new, for, like, Forward has written about this, Times of Israel. Like, people really? have written about the phrase Jewface. No, and I, I've, I've heard this discussion, and, like, I'm more offended by it. There's a lot of other things in the media that upset me than a non-Jew playing a Jew. I mean, I glad that there's Jewish characters that exist and that are fantastic. And I'm sorry, Miss Maisel is like a brilliant show with a brilliant character. And I think it's written by a Jewish woman. Yeah, 
Amy Sherman Powell, you know, based it largely on her, like, her father and him being... And Joan Rivers, I thought. Oh, yeah. Well, it's based on... Yes, it's based on Joan Rivers, but the creator is also Jewish. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I mean, we are already represented well in the media. I mean, I don't think we are represented... I was going to say, I don't think we're represented full extent. Like, I mean, I'm sometimes embarrassed that Lena Dunham played Hannah Horvath and, like, that's the Jewish character we have. Like, that's what we have. Yeah, but <laughs> the, the, I, I will. I wrote uh, a front page story about Jewish TV just a, a month ago and talked about it in the podcast, so listeners may find this redundant. But uh, this last decade has been like a banner year for Jewish television and yeah. uh, Jewish characters, like Transparent, Mrs. Maisel, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Broad, Broad City, City. Uh, and so you have a lot of right. So it, there are better com- ones. There there's are a coming better. of age of uh, of minorities, and Jews are part of that. Like writing about themselves explicitly rather than hiding Jewish characters. Right, and Broad City is a perfect example. Like, they're fun, they're loving, they smoke a lot of weed, they remind me of girls I went to summer camp with. (laughs) Well, it's not not strictly um, confined to Jews, right? Because you have the same argument comes up uh, frequently with trans people, also transparent, interestingly, but any other, uh, you know, uh, trans character, they typically say, well, why couldn't you find a trans actor? And I think this is interesting because I'll tell you why. Jews, for me, Jewish people play non-Jews and we exist in the world of Hollywood like we're there there's a lot of us playing actors there's a lot of us who have success trans people are only kind of being accepted now I think representation of a true trans person is important I think it's important for people who are maybe thinking of trans like maybe don't feel like themselves and want to transition and seeing that in the media is not very important and that's how I feel like it relates to me seeing plus size people right like I grew up with no plus size people in social in in media you grew up I grew up none so I always felt like a really weird person I always felt out of it like I hated myself a lot because of it and I think seeing that representation makes you okay to be who you are and that's super important and I think trans people have it so difficult even now and I think it's going to be difficult for a long time. And I think it's so important that we have give them that representation. But is it? Does that mean the actor or actress has to be a trans person as well? Because that's what the argument is over, right? I, Not about the representation. Jeffrey Tambor being an example. But that's the thing. I think trans actors get looked over constantly. So when you have a trans role, put a trans person in because it, there isn't a lot of trans roles. There's, and it's, and it's not like they're getting cis roles. I think is part of your point, right? Like exactly. Jews play Gentiles all the time. I'm not allowed to say uh, goy on this podcast anymore, apparently. That was a debate we had a different uh, week. I have a... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's not even just confined to trans. I mean, that, that's one example, right? But you have uh, the same thing with, with gay actors playing straight people or vice versa. The same thing with Koreans playing Chinese people. The same, you know, and on and on and on. It's all about... I, I, I don't... And maybe the answer is you can't universalize it. And you do have to address each culture and, uh, yeah. and gender and sexual orientation specifically. And, it, and the rules are different. And if that's the answer, then that's fine. And, that, and for Jews, we're allowed more flexibility. I think and because, for other we're, like we're you said earlier, we're white, we're white people who are affluent. Like, we're... Generally speaking. Generally speaking. Sorry, generally. Generally. A lot of us are. A lot of us are. So, I mean, I, and we're not... I mean, there's a ton of anti-Semitism, but, like, it's not the same. We are... Like, trans people and, like, other people are... They're harmed all the time to umpteenth degrees than we suffer in certain ways. And I don't know, I think their representation is really important. And I'll say this for me, like seeing thin people dress up as fat people is a mockery of fat people. Like, fuck you for putting on a fat suit. Get out of here. It's insane. There's fat people who can do the job. 
Well, often they're doing it to make them the butt of the joke. Too. Exactly. And like you, that's maybe the why they don't can't find maybe a fat person because they have more self-esteem for themselves. And when they don't, it's just so it's like fucked up. And it's, I think, case by case. But that's how I feel on that personal issue, you know. So, so to bring it back to Jews, um, <laughs> I think Jews don't have to worry about uh, non-Jews playing Jewish characters. Uh, Alex, you kind of agree with me. Yeah, no, I, I don't think we have to worry. I think Jews are an interesting test case because what if all of a sudden people are like, you can't be a non-Jew playing a Jew, then like, are Italians next and different other yeah. ethnicities of white people? It's like degrees Until, of privilege moving up, moving yeah. up the chain. Um, but no, I, I, I'm okay with it. As long yeah. as, like we said, like the, the portrayal is respectful. And, and, you know, maybe consult a Jewish person and whoever well, is Jewish writing. Per- yeah. I mean, there's there's probably a Jewish person involved anyway, let's be honest. But <laughs> yeah. at <Oof>. some level. <laughs> so, and, and so your final, the Jews need to I don't care. No. <laughs> I don't care. Do you do, play a Jew, have fun. You'll never get our neuroses right, so. <laughs> <laughs> And that's it for the Canadian Jewish Schmooze this week. Thanks so much to list for listening to this uh, somewhat longer than usual episode. But I had a feeling we'd go bantering on a little bit much thanks to our wonderful guest, Natalie Norman. Thanks again for coming. Thank you for having me. Um, one last time, your album, if you want to give it a little quick plug. It's uh, called The Big Reveal. You can find it on all streaming sites. And you can find me at Stalking Natalie on all social media. Wonderful. <laughs> Wait, sorry. Just to be clear, stalking like following and not like the thing you put on your legs? Yeah, stalking. <laughs> like following me around. Okay. Okay, got it. Um, my name is Michael Freeman. I'm Alex Rose. And uh, we're the co-host. I produce and edit this podcast. Uh, our intro music is by Vanya Zhuk. Our outro music is by Lache Swing. And we'll be back in two weeks with some more Canadian Jewish news. See you then.